0: Welcome to the Physical Geography Podcast. This is Thomas Larson. We are now wrapping up the semester, and I've talked to many of my students about how the class has aligned with the rest of their lives. One pattern I've seen is students trying to do too much with so little time. It reminded me of when I was a student, taking far too many credit hours while balancing multiple jobs, trying to sleep and enjoy leisure time. In this fast-paced world, we tend to forget that hyperactivity can slow our progress, make us prone to burnout, and create disorder in our lives. Throughout my teaching career, I've had students miss assignments, skip long stretches of class time, conduct their online shopping during lecture, and wonder why they are not excelling in their courses. When that happens, I tend to receive frantically written, misspelled emails that usually end with sent from my iPhone. As a teacher, I've reached a point where these little parts of my everyday life do not really offend me. And because I care about your success, I become concerned. What these acts signal is the need for students to set better boundaries with how they use their time, to set boundaries on the number of classes that they take, The part of college when I learned the most was when I was taking just 12 credit hours, as opposed to 18, and when I made very clear with my employers that school takes priority over filling in the work schedule. Furthermore, I found that my life felt more balanced when I disconnected from social media and Netflix, trading those conveniences with a book in a daily journal. Reading just 10 pages per day compounds over time. Over an entire year, that amounts to around 3,650 pages. Writing a page in my journal every morning became a sort of therapy, a chance for me to take stock of how I was feeling. With a simple change in daily habit, you could be more well-read and emotionally intelligent than most of your peers. In other words, we need to slow down. When colleges first sprung up around America, they appeared more like monasteries than what we have today. Originally, colleges offered space for young adults to reflect on what it means to be human. Learning was leisure. Campuses were usually secluded from major hubs of activity to allow for reflection. Modern college campuses, however, resemble fast-paced amusement parks of student orientations, intramural sports, campus groups, luxury student accommodations, with a dash of education here from time to time. Now, I could be wrong, but I believe that there's simply too much going on to cultivate a deeper relationship with the big questions of our world. In any case, it makes sense to slow down. We tend to forget that we do not have to have all of our accomplishments done right now or in the immediate future. I don't care if you're studying to become a geographer Philosopher, healthcare specialist, accountant, building contractor, or business person. At some point, many of us will stop to wonder, what if I really made a point to read the materials in that philosophy class, even though I am majoring in physical education? How would my life be different if I found joy in learning for its own sake, rather than agonize over what grade I will earn? Slow down. Keep in touch with your instructors. Touch base with me from time to time. Furthermore, consider minoring or majoring in geography, which will equip you with a liberating, well-rounded, marketable college education. To dip your toes in the water, consider taking another geography course next semester. I'm teaching an online world geography course during the winter term. In the spring, my colleague, Dr. Mark Welford, is teaching a fascinating nature and society course. I'll be teaching human geography as well as a hands on mapping course for non geography majors called Digital Earth. I have yet to encounter a student who has regretted their decision to commit to studying the Earth as home to humans and declaring a geography major. My life has been enhanced considerably because of geography. All right, so that's my soapbox for today. This episode, we will talk about soil. Soils are these complex mixtures of organic and inorganic material, which is a fancy way to say that soil has a bunch of stuff thrown together that's living and non-living. This material coalesces to form layers of soil on Earth's surface, like an earthly wedding cake filled with nutrients, worms, insects, burrowing animals, plant roots, and so on. Soils comprise Earth's skin, and their presence awakens our awareness to the geography underground, helping us to realize that the Earth's system takes place where we may not notice. A soil's formation involves a variety of factors that physical geographers study. Soils influenced by places climate, how hot or dry a location is, geology, proximity to rivers, glaciers, and deserts, as well as soil chemistry. In other words, to truly understand soil, we must understand the entirety of the Earth's system. And soil provides a window into that awakening. In this episode, we will discuss soil as a superorganism and soil as a way to describe how chemistry has transformed the ways humans interact with the environment. You can tell a lot about a place based on its soil. Imagine if we gathered a group of soil scientists together for a wine tasting, but instead of wine they were asked to guess the locations of a variety of soil samples. They could hold the soil in their hands, smell it, perhaps even taste it. Examining the soil's texture, water content, color, parent material, and acidity, well-traveled soil scientists might be able to determine if a sample comes from the dusty red oxidized soils of Australia's outback or the nutrient-rich dark Tama soils found in Black Hawk County, Iowa. The look and feel of that soil can provide suggestions for a place's climate and vegetation. Those place characteristics will influence the ways people interact with that environment. Soils impact whether or not it makes more sense to plant corn versus planting trees for logging. Let's say that after a soil tasting as it were. We decide to reward the panel of soil scientists by providing them with a flight of whiskeys from around the world, a reward for thinking hard about soils. Among them might be a corn whiskey from the Cedar Ridge Distillery, Iowa's first distillery to open after Prohibition. They might be presented with an Elijah Craig Kentucky whiskey made from the grains of rye. All is going well and everything's feeling much merrier. But then comes the last one, a single malt scotch from the highlands of Scotland in the United Kingdom. A single malt scotch must have its origin in one Scottish distillery, not a blend of scotches from many places. So this scotch ends up catching everyone by surprise because it tastes and smells so different from the other whiskies. If you have ever tried Scotch, you will find that it has a very distinctive earthy flavor. The reason lies in the soil type used in the production of the Scotch. The Highlands of Scotland contain peat, which is an organic plant matter that has been compacted into the soil for a long time. How did the Highlands come to be? During the Pleistocene, a large glacial ice sheet once covered the landscape. According to geologist Ellen Wool, once the massive glacier receded, the land rebounded like a chair cushion after a person gets up from it. Rocks and sediment are elastic. So the highlands rose as a result of that decrease in pressure from the ice sheet, creating an uneven terrain of hills and valleys. The highlands now comprise of a nutrient rich, poorly drained landscape of peat, mud, pondweed, and mosses. The Scots originally used peat as a source of heating. When dried and ignited, peat can burn hot and long like coal. Whiskey makers first started using peat to heat up pot stills used in the distillation process. Traditionally Scots would take a shovel, dig out large sections of peat out of the landscape, dry that peat and then light it next to the malted barley used to make whiskey. Fragrant smoke from the burning peat would infuse with the barley to give scotch its distinctive smoky flavor. When burned, peat will smell differently from a campfire, tobacco smoke, or oil. If you are not a big drinker, you can still enjoy the pleasant peaty fragrance of scotch, Because an important part of the drinking experience is nosing the whiskey. Literally sticking your nose in the glass and sniffing the liquid. Humans have another type of alcohol to thank. Wine. Wine producers in Bordeaux, France, found out that if you were to mix copper sulfate with quicklime, you could ward away harmful funguses that kill crops. The discovery happened in October 1882 by a French botanist named Pierre-Marie Alexis Milladay. Traveling around Bordeaux, Milladay noticed that the grape growers would spray a mixture of copper and lime on the crops. The so-called Bordeaux mixture became the first internationally used fungicide. Fungicides represent any substance that can kill fungi and prevent their expansion. They belonged to a broader group of pesticides. The search for such a cure was spawned by Scotland's neighbor, Ireland. The Irish potato famine of 1845 to 1849 was a dark period in Ireland's history. Around 1 million people died of starvation and disease. Potato crops died in mass because of a water mold called Phytophthora infestans which translates roughly to dangerous plant corruptor." The blight spawned interest in finding a cure for such infestations. Millarday's Bordeaux mixture was responsible for preventing future potato famines. It gave rise to commercial fungicides and pesticides. In the present day, the majority of the world's 1.8 billion agriculturalists use pesticides. The US alone uses over 1 billion pounds of pesticides, the weight of the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. The world uses about 5.6 billion pounds or almost six Burj Khalifas. Pesticides do not just harm insects, mold and fungi. They can also harm humans, reptiles, birds and non-human mammals. Every year, according to a study in Reviews on Environmental Health, Around 25 million agriculturalists encounter unintentional pesticide poisonings. According to the U S department of agriculture, 50 million Americans drink water, potentially contaminated by agricultural pesticides. In 2016, the United States used 322 million pounds of pesticides that were banned in the European union. Indeed. Chemistry impacts more than just the plants and the soils that house them. They can pose problems for human health and the health of ecosystems. The use of chemicals for agriculture brings us to fertilizers. Allow me to introduce you to one of the most important yet controversial figures in environmental history. Who was the scientist who received the only Nobel Prize in the sciences ever contested or vehemently disagreed upon? The answer is Fritz Haber. Fritz Haber was a German chemist. Haber was competing with another chemist, Walter Nernst, in the attempt To fixate nitrogen from the atmosphere and turn it into ammonia. Turning atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia allows plants to better absorb the nutrient. The rivalry between Haber and Nernst resulted in improvements to the method for converting nitrogen into ammonia. At the turn of the 1900s, just before World War I began, Haber ultimately won out because he was able to develop a process that could yield much more ammonia at a time. Originally, the global fertilizer market relied on manure from livestock and guano, or X-Mint from bats in South America. Now that nitrogen could be fixated, the global fertilizer industry boomed. The new fertilizer initiated the Green Revolution, a period of time which yielded far more crops than ever before. The Green Revolution of the 20th century allowed for developing countries to plant many more crops. Fertilizers and pesticides became widely used throughout the world. Large scale industrial agriculture could be adopted in places where it was originally unknown. Those trends lead some historians to argue that Haber was the most influential chemist in world history because of this discovery. If Haber was so influential Then, why did some scholars disagree with or contest his receiving of the Nobel Prize? The disagreement had to do with how Haber used his understanding of chemistry to promote warfare. During World War I, Haber was tasked by the German government to research how to create poison gas. His team chose chlorine as the weapon of choice, which could be stored as a liquid in large containers. When chlorine was released, The heavy gas would hover along the ground level and cause deadly injuries to human respiratory systems. Once Haber developed this chemical weapon, he released 150 tons of chlorine gas on April 22, 1915, which now is, coincidentally, Earth Day. A light breeze steered the greenish yellow gas to the enemy side. Some soldiers ran straight into the gas, firing off their weapons, while others retreated, one observer described the situation, quote, first wonder, then fear. Then, as the first fringes of the cloud enveloped them and left them choking and agonized in the fight for breath, panic. Those who could move broke and ran, trying generally in vain to outstrip the cloud, which followed inexorably after them, unquote. Around five to 10,000 deaths resulted, along with 10,000 men injured. April 22, 1915, witnessed the first ever weapon of mass destruction in human history. A celebration of the chemical weapon's success happened on May 1, 1915, shortly after. Among Haber and his colleagues, Clara, Haber's wife, was also a chemist and detested the poison gases and begged Haber to cease producing them. Learning about the chemical weapon attack, Clara could not bear the thought of her husband committing such mass murder so quickly. She had also been mourning the deaths of some close friends, harboring disappointment about her own career, and enduring ongoing marriage problems. On that May evening, Clara took Haber's gun walked out to the garden and shot herself in the head. The next day, May 2nd, Haber returned to the battlefield. During World War I, Germany would generate more than 200,000 tons of fertilizer using Haber's nitrogen-fixing method. Fertilizer is not just for agriculture. It is also highly explosive and was used to produce bombs for the German military. Because of Haber's involvement in chemical warfare, he was declared by many scholars as morally unfit to receive the 1918 Nobel Prize. In environmental history, the relationship between chemistry and soil has had a dark past. While society has much to thank for Haber's nitrogen fixation process, they do so at a severe cost of chemical weapons fertilizer explosives, and, overall, weapons of mass destruction. Soils teach us a lot about humans in the Earth's system, the good and the bad parts. According to geographer Edward Ralph, the word human comes from the Latin humanus, which derives from the Latin homo, or man homo is derivative of the latin humus which translates to earth thus humans are a combination of humus and homo an earth-born species nature made aware of itself when we feel more authentically ourselves for example we like to say that we feel more grounded in who we are soil thus plays a major part in how people make meaning in the places they belong to call soil dirt would cheapen the reality that humans and soils are intertwined. Soils, with their collection of living and non-living matter, are like a super-organism, a singular entity comprised of many different organisms in the same place that work together. All of the plant material, minerals, insects, root systems, and animals come together to create hundreds of different soil profiles, often like unique fingerprints on Earth's surface. At the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that soil provides a window to the entire Earth system that we explore in physical geography. Just as a soil is a superorganism, a living thing consisting of many living things, Earth too can be viewed as a superorganism. James Lovelock is a scientist who popularized the hypothesis that Earth is a giant superorganism. Lovelock helped develop instruments for NASA to detect evidence of life on other planets and moons. Lovelock called his idea the Gaia theory. Gaia is a name derived from the Greek goddess of Earth. Humans are just one part of this superorganism. We belong to it, along with countless other non-human species. Life, in all of its complexity, has modified the environment around it to make Earth more suitable for it. Oxygen first emerged in the atmosphere because early life forms produced it. Humans very well might become extinct if Gaia reacts negatively to society's mistreatment of the environment. Gaia theory is a controversial topic, but it reiterates the fact that humans are not alone. We are one part of a complex Earth system, and we must take care to not surpass the planet's boundaries of operation that's all i have for this episode everybody be curious explore often and pursue meaningful things thank you